millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Privileged to be joined by Clive Tilsley, who has been a epic voice in the English language for football for over 35, 40 years now. Uh, and Clive, uh, you're calling the Liverpool-Villarreal match first leg on Wednesday at Anfield. Uh, take us through Champions League this year because you've become very much the face and the voice or one of the faces and voices of the Champions League in the United States uh, on CBS Sports. Champions League is the is the ultimate level of club football in the world. It is not as global as the World Cup itself, but there is an argument for saying that the standard is higher in the closing stages of the Champions League than it is even in international football in the closing stages of the, of the World Cup. They're, we're entering the silly season in the summer when some of the greatest names in our sport will change clubs. And one of the requirements, obviously, is uh, about $4 million a week or something crazy. But, but, but one of the requirements will be, for their ambition, will be to join a club with, which is as qualified for the Champions League. It is the main stage of, uh, of, the, of, of the club game throughout the world, really. I mean, obviously, there are competitions... Um, equivalent competitions in South America and in North America now and, and, and in Asia too. But but clearly the level is highest amongst the major club sides of Europe. And throughout my life, um, and perhaps um, to give you some historical perspective on the importance of the Champions League, since the mid-1950s, the mid to late 1950s, when the European Cup was born, the competition which brought together the champions of all the European nations. It has been the most prestigious title. It just happens to be one of the largest trophies in world sport too. So um, there's been iconic photographs of all of the great names really throughout my lifetime in the game, lifting the European Cup, which is now the, the trophy which goes with the Champions League. So if you're watching um, either of the, uh, the semi-finals uh, on CBS this week, or indeed the, re the return games are next week. I will be in Madrid next week. Um, just to underline, you you are watching playoff standard uh, sport. You know, the, 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 these are the games which every 
footballer in Europe aspires to play in. So you were in Barcelona in May of 1999 for... Uh, what, what I think many of us, and I, I'm not a Manchester United supporter, I'm actually a Manchester City supporter, but one of what, and I was at the same time sweating about a, uh, a, a second division, now League One playoff final we were in against Gillingham, by the way. Um, I remember it. Yeah. Paul Dickoff. Yeah, Paul Dickoff's goal uh, in stoppage time, and then we win um, on, on pens later. But yeah, uh, but you were, you were in Barcelona that night. And that night, that call from you on ITV, I, I identify as the breakout of the Premier League. Manchester United lifting the trophy that year was so important for English football in a broader context within Europe uh, and the global eyes uh, that are on the Champions League. Uh, take us through that call because that, that stoppage time, your, 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 your words were so uh, – people were hanging on and have hung on to for years. Um. I was also in the Heisel Stadium uh, 14 years earlier um, when I went to cover uh, the, the final of the Champions League, what was then the European Cup, and finished up counting corpses. And um, the, uh, as, as part of the aftermath of that disaster, uh, the English clubs were um, uh, kicked out of, uh, of European competition for a while. And really, um, from being in a, a pretty dominant um Situation in the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, through that period um, of exile, it took really until 1999 for for English clubs to recover their place in the in the European scene. So, in many respects, that was the the night which ended that that long wait for. Um, um, for, for recognition at the highest level of the game for an English club side that just happened to be uh, Manchester United. It was an historic night f- for the club because they had been crowned champions of England 10 days earlier and had won the FA Cup final um, three or four days earlier at Wembley Stadium. So it was a, um, a kind of triple crown, a treble of, um, of, of major trophy successes. It was a big, big night for me personally. Um, it was the uh, climax of my first year as ITV's senior network commentator, succeeding an absolute legend uh, in my profession, the late great Brian Moore. Um, so uh, if, um, if I'd screwed up that night, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation now, Kartik. <laughs> they'd have found a replacement for me there and then. But all we can ask for as broadcasters is material to work with. We're, we're only like actors. Um, we, we, we're reliant upon the script that is written. And that wasn't a particularly great game, if the truth told, but the last bits of the game were compelling and the climax of the story well, if if you'd taken it to a Hollywood director six months earlier, they'd have they'd have thrown you out of there and just said, you know, <laughs> that can't possibly happen. <laughs> So you uh, at ITV were were covering Champions League and and other European football as well as international tournaments and actually should should backtrack uh, prior to your second stint at ITV, you're at the BBC, you get to call a number of matches at Euro 96, which is a home tournament, a hosting, a tournament where England was hosting. Uh, 
Tell our listeners a little bit about that, because I think that's something that American audiences will want to hear about going into the World Cup in 2026. When your nation and you're, you're the broadcaster for the nation hosting a tournament, it's a little different than calling a, a diff, another tournament. Yeah, I, I obviously um, England have been through a similar experience um, just last year in, in terms of hosting the, the, the European finals. And England actually reached the final this time rather than the semi-finals. Um, as was the case in 1996. I, I, uh, I covered the the World Cup finals of 1994 for the BBC, and I remember um, arriving, uh, landing at LAX. Um, I, I spent most of that tournament on the on the West Coast, and it, it was almost as if the World Cup was not happening in the USA. I, normally, when you when you visit a country to cover a, a major international sporting event like a World Cup, um, the uh, the branding, if you like, of the competition is everywhere you go. You know, in, in Japan and South Korea, in South Africa, certainly in the European nations, definitely in Brazil, you, you could not drive two miles without seeing some reference to the World Cup finals. In 94, when we arrived in the States... Um, OJ got in a car the, the, the night before um, the finals began, which kind of <laughs> distracted everybody from everything, including, if, if you recall, the um, the final NBA playoff match was shown in a small box at the corner of the screen as uh, that white Bronco toured the highways. And somehow, even though the stadium were full and we were watching massive football matches um, in, in front of huge crowds, I think I would be right in saying... A lot of the fans in the States at the time had an, an ethnic attachment to the game, um, which, which you know, uh, maybe produced um, a different kind of a spectacle than you're going to see next time. You know, I think um, this, this game that we call football is, is far more now a part of, of the fabric of American sport, far more, far more a part of the culture of, um, of American social life. And so I think there'll be a different feeling for that tournament. I'm not suggesting it will be quite as close to, to what we've seen in England when England is staging a, a major international tournament. But um, I think it will be a lot closer to what I saw in, uh, in 1994. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it, obviously a, a strong showing from... The American team from the Mexican team, um, from the Canadian team, um, will um, enhance the competition in a big way. And that's an important part of um, the success of a major international uh, tournament. But um, I think in terms of embracing this game and, and getting to know a little bit more about how it touches other parts of the world, that's going to be a fantastic experience for North America. And before we get back to... Uh American audiences and, and Champions League and, and talk a little bit about your, your calling Premier League matches also in the States, uh, have to bring up 2016 in France, Euro 2016, your call at the end of the Iceland-England game, the ignominy, uh, ignominy that England faced uh, is also quite famous. It, it's a very, very strange experience, probably in many ways the most difficult game um, that I've covered. Uh, we have some great football clubs, great football franchises in, in England. 
you know, Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Manchester City, yeah, Manchester City, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the most popular football team in England in terms of uh, uh, television viewership and, and, and the emotions that they stir within the nation is the England national team. There is nothing to compare with the relationship between any set of club supporters with their team than there is with the nation particularly with a successful uh, English national team. So it becomes personal. You almost get to feel as if, it's almost like you're watching your kids' team. You almost feel like you get to know these guys. And um, for them to disappoint in the way that England did in France in 2016, specifically in that game against Iceland, I mean, it, it affected the watching public in a way that a club result doesn't. I mean, I, I don't know if if, if, um, if if sort of franchise sport in the States is quite as um, a tribe, tribalistic, if you like, but uh, here, when you're calling um, a, a major European final featuring one of the Manchester clubs or one of the Liverpool clubs or one of the London clubs, you've got to be a little bit careful of, of, uh, of getting... Um, too excited because there are an awful lot of people watching who want them to lose, you know, just because of that, um, that the fanaticism which, which which exists within club football, where if we don't win, we certainly don't want you to win. Well, that goes that goes out of the window during a, a national tournament. The other complication for me that night in Nice, watching England lose to Iceland, is that the England coach was a very close friend of mine. Is a very close friend of mine, Roy Hodgson. Um, my wife and I had been out for dinner several times with, with Roy and Sheila. Um, strangely, I'm in a similar situation when Gareth Southgate was at our wedding. So um, <laughs> so it is, and, and I'm sure any broadcasters uh, listening now will identify with the difficulty. Inevitably, through the nature of our business, we form friendships with people that we commentate on or we commentate on the, you know, maybe the team they coach or whatever. And people always say, who do you support? Is it difficult to compensate on the team you support? I really don't support a particular club, but I do have strong affections to, for, for my close friends within the game. And my affection tends to travel with them as they go from club to club. So for me, with a minute of that game, and it's uh, it's quite an interesting story. I actually refer to it. I, um, I wrote a book last year, not, not for me, Clive, and, and talk about the moment when the editor of the, the program, knowing my friendship with Roy, actually said privately in my ear, you're going to have to call this. And I went back on the lazy button that where I can talk to him where you don't hear me saying, yeah, I know, <laughs> uh, but there's still a minute to go here. England only need one goal. But sure enough, at the end of that minute, I had to say publicly to more than 20 million people, and we're only a nation of 50, 60 million, um, you know, Roy Hodgson's position as England coach is no longer tenable. Now, he knew it. He, he had resigned almost before I completed the sentence. He knew he had to go. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's uh, that, that's the, you know, what's the most difficult call in sport? Uh, calling against a good friend. And for those who don't know, and I, I'm going to throw this out here because I throw it out there a lot about Roy Hodgson, one of the few English managers who's gained the respect 
on the continent that has made him uh, a, 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 a figure uh, of, of great uh, celebration that's been celebrated uh, in places like Italy when he managed Inter, uh, in Scandinavia. In fact, if you, if you speak to Swedish football fans or Swedish football historians, they give Roy Hodgson a lot of credit for transitioning the, the, the way football was played in Scandinavia and in Sweden specifically in the 1980s. And, and of course, with Switzerland, speaking of the 94 World Cup, and, and uh, Finland, I think Finland wasn't even a relevant football nation until Hodgson managed their national team. So, so really great, great manager. It was a terrible way for him to potentially end his career. So I'm thankful he came back and did he's such great working. stuff with he's Yeah, a, He's yeah. a coach in the Premier League right now. Yeah. And their son lives in the States. He lives in Florida, I believe. So uh, they're, they're, uh, Roy and Sheila are regular visitors to the, to the U.S. To, to visit their son. Yeah, and I'm so thankful he got the opportunity to manage Palace, did really well with them. And now with Watford, maybe a, a bridge too far, but still they've been more competitive since he took over than they were sure. under Claudio Ranieri, much, much more competitive. The FIFA video game I have to ask you about uh, and championship manager before we get uh, back to calling matches because so many in the United States know you from, know your, knew your voice really well when you started doing match commentary for audiences in this country because of those video games which you called for at least a decade. Absolutely, and um, I was very aware of that. I was fortunate really when I... I took on the gig that I had a FIFA playing son and I knew um, <laughs> how much time, sadly, uh, he spent staring into a TV set uh, playing imaginary games. So it was a big part of his life. And so the soundtrack is a big part of, um, of the game. And um, the game is actually made in Vancouver. And uh, I, I came over to, um, to deliver a couple of workshops to the programmers who... Uh, who create the you know the the AI magic of these uh, uh, computer games? To which I then wrote um, a, a, a script to go with that. Um, wrote a soundtrack effectively to the movie, um, and then delivered it as you say for for several years. And you talk about the impact in the states. Um, my wife and I went on a a wonderful holiday um, uh, in the uh, Middle East. Um, or would probably be about eight years ago. And um, uh, one of the places we visited um, uh, in Jordan was a kind of desert area, um, a, just a, a most wonderful untouched piece of earth, so much so that they actually shoot some sci-fi movies there. Um, and you can spend a night under the, the most fantastic um, sky, uh, a starlit sky under canvas, um, and you just feel a million miles away from anybody and everybody. And uh, in order to drive from where you, your, uh, your car uh, um, leaves you out into the, the desert area, um, we went out with, with this sort of nomadic guy in the back of his Jeep, and his two kids came along for the ride. It's probably a 20, 30-minute ride out to where we were going to sleep under the, under the stars. And it was a pretty noisy Jeep, and we were sat in the front, uh, and so our voices were raised as we were trying to have a conversation with his broken English. And his two young children, who would be about eight, ten years of age, were laughing away and screaming in the back next to my wife. And he turned around and, um, and apprehended them, scolded them, uh, and they shouted back, shouted back. And they, he turned to me and he said, 
they say you sound like the man from FIFA. <laughs> so I turned around to them and said, it's a very good evening from me, Clive. So they went, ah, FIFA, FIFA, FIFA. <laughs> so you think, you think it registered in the States. It, it registered in Jordan, you know, in a, in a tribal setting a million miles from civilization as we know it. But these two kids played FIFA. And they recognize my voice. <laughs> FIFA links the world. The FIFA video game links the world almost as much as Champions League or a European Championship or a World Cup. Amazing. Um, you started calling matches for an American audience, I want to say in 2018 maybe it was, or 2019, with NBC Sports calling select Premier League matches, which was a, a, a treat uh, for, for a lot of us in the States. And then uh, 2020 CBS uh, acquires the UEFA Champions League rights, you, you, you go over there and, and, and you start calling matches, uh, including the final with Rob Green in, in uh, uh, 2020, which I guess was uh, probably off the monitor, right? Because we were in COVID protocol. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, um, it, strangely, um, the, uh, the game in Madrid next week, the second leg of uh, Real Madrid Manchester City, will be the first commentary that I've done in mainland Europe uh, from the venue um, for... Well, probably 18 months. Uh, we've been travelling to the English-based games, but um, we haven't been crossing the channel to go to games. It just hasn't made sense in, in, in any way at all, but, but we feel this is safe enough to go now, yeah. Is, is there any sort of prep you do differently for an American okay. audience than you would for, for a UK audience? It's a very good question, um, and it, it is a dilemma um, in so much that I feel the commentary should reflect wider communication. Communication is so important in the 21st century. Um, and in order to um, tick the boxes of informing and entertaining, which is kind of what sports commentary um, is designed to do, to add something to the pictures, um, I think you've got to identify your audience first and foremost and ask yourself who you're trying to inform and who you're trying to entertain. And sure, the North American audience is a little different from what we're used to uh, here in Europe. Um, CBS and indeed NBC have always encouraged us to commentate as if we were commentating to a European audience. And I think that is good advice because what you don't want to be is condescending or patronising. As a, as a communicator, try never to assume too much knowledge in any circumstance but at the same time, you don't want to be talking down to your audience as if this is the first sporting event that they've ever witnessed. And it's interesting, it, it, it takes me back to when I first got hooked um, on NFL in the early 1980s, um, you know, back in the days of, of Montana and Riggins and Marino and Allen. Um, I, I picked up uh, on Channel 4's coverage here in the UK of, uh, of NFL uh, under the magician uh, that was Pat Summerall, my favourite sports commentator of all time, the late, great Pat Summerall, alongside John Madden on CBS, which makes actually it, it all the more special that I'm now working uh, for the same network. And it, it just didn't seem the same unless there were American accents and authoritative commentary coming from a man like Pat. Um, if, if, for instance... They sent out their own English commentators to try to cover Super Bowl. It didn't have the same resonance. So even though um, Champions League football is reaching you with very English or British accents, I think it probably fits 
better with an American audience than than may, maybe it would do if um, I don't know you sent um, uh, you, you, I know you gave the microphone to to Jesse Marsh and Christian Pulisic. You know, even guys who were involved with the Champions League somehow perhaps the soundtrack to to this great European competition should be European to give it its authenticity. So I hope that fits. I tend to change transfer fees from, from pound sterling or euro to, to dollars. Um, I make very few other allowances. Maybe if there is a strange um, piece of jargon that is, is unusual to a particular country, I might try to explain it a little bit. But um, I'm working on the understanding that if you, you know, if you're streaming Paramount Plus or if you're tuning in to, to watch these games on on the CBS network, doing it because care about major sport and, and major football, and so therefore you you know you want to, a, a commentary that matches your interest. Clive Tilsley, thank you so much for that. Uh, we will catch you this Wednesday. You said you're doing uh, the match from Anfield, and then the following Wednesday, uh, you're you're at the Bernabeu. Yeah, I bet Peter Drury and uh, Jim Beglin will be commentating on the two Tuesday games, and um, Rob Green and I will be commentating on the two Wednesday games. So it's, um, I mean, when, when you get to this stage of what is a knockout competition, then obviously there's a greater element of chance comes in. Um, you know, this is not a World Series played over seven games where, you know, surprise results are unlikely. The best team is likely to win an NBA Finals over over seven games. But this, these games have just played over two games. And um, Villarreal have already pulled off two massive shocks in putting out Juventus and, and Bayern Munich in order to reach the semifinals. They're a small team from a small town. Um in Spain, uh, whether they can upset the odds once again, that their path to this route has, uh, to this stage has been very dramatic. Late goals snatched to victories. Um, Real Madrid are just the the kings of the competition. Nope, they won it nearly twice as many times as anybody else. They have an aura about them, uh, and that aura, I think, has come to pass in the last two rounds, where they found themselves in very difficult positions. But not only do they believe that Real Madrid can always prevail in this competition, I think their opponents believe it too. And so when the game starts to turn Real's way, as it did against Paris Saint-Germain so dramatically, and it did against Chelsea uh, in Madrid, then this, um, this feeling, this standing, this status that Real Madrid have in the competition, uh, I think comes to bear out there in, in the middle and... Um, I think it's 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 helped them get through. So we've got two fascinating uh, matchups in the semi-final: England versus Spain. Um, we had an all-English final last time. I think probably the odds makers would say that's the likelihood again. But with Real Madrid, um, there's always that presence, that history, that legend in this competition. And with Villarreal, you just never know. Yeah, especially with Unai Emery, who has. Uh, unparalleled success in uh, at least in the other Europe, major European competition right in the Europa League in terms of getting teams to the finals and winning finals so a manager who knows a little something about European Cup competitions uh, Claude Tilsley thank you so much thank you thanks Claude
Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.